Welcome to Hungry Authors, the show for aspiring authors who will stop at nothing to accomplish their writing and publishing dreams. We're your hosts, Liz and Ariel, and we're honored that you're here. Let's dive in. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Hungry Authors Podcast. Today, my friend and incomparable podcast co-host Liz cannot join us because she's out of town. So I have the solo honor of chatting with our guest today. Dubbed the Adele of audiobooks by The New Yorker, Julia Whelan is a writer, lifelong actor, and audiobook narrator of over 500 titles. She's won numerous awards, including Audible's Narrator of the Year and the Best Female Narrator, Audie. She's the author of three works of fiction, My Oxford Year, Thank You for Listening, and just launched Casanova LLC. She's also the founder of Audiobrary, which is a new audiobook platform you'll hear about in this episode. Most importantly, Julia is a wonderful person and very graciously agreed to letting me pick her brain about all things audiobooks, so I hope you enjoy this episode with Julia Whelan. So Julia, welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. Thank you for having me. We are super excited to chat today, and I would love to start with just a deeper understanding of the process of recording an audiobook, because I think that's something a lot of authors listening to this really don't know. It's kind of a black box and just audiobooks just seem to kind of pop up. So how does that magic happen? They just appear like a film just appears in Netflix. Yeah. Um, Okay. So uh, from like soup to nuts, what happens is I get an offer email from a publisher or a producer uh, saying, we have this title. Here's how long we think it's going to be, you know, 10 finished hours, let's say. Here's our recording window. Can you do it? So I make a decision based on I don't have time to read the book ahead of time. They don't have time to wait for me to read the book ahead of time. So I have to make the decision based on the author, the synopsis, mostly scheduling, honestly. And then um, once I've agreed to do it, I get the manuscript as soon as it's available and I do a prep read. And in that prep read, I'm looking for two distinct things. I'm keeping a word list of the words that I need to learn how to pronounce. And sometimes those are real words, but sometimes they're author invention or they're things that could go a number of ways, like a character's name is T-A-N-Y-A. Well, does the author want that to be Tanya or Tanya or, you know, and then I'm keeping a character list. Uh, This is if it's fiction where I've got um, any vocal traits that the character that the author has ascribed to that character, um, any biographical details that are important. Um, And then I start building kind of the cast in my head of how I'm going to be voicing those characters. Once I have done the prep read, I send off any questions that I have to the publisher, which then gets sent to the author. And hopefully I get a timely response (laughs) to those questions. And then I go in um, on the scheduled day and I start recording the audiobook. And I am, for the vast majority of my time doing that from home, from my booth, um, recording myself without an engineer or director, just running everything myself. Um, and then I upload the files when they're done to the publisher. They go to an editor who listens along and sends back any corrections that I need to make. I make those corrections. They drop them in. They master it. They sweeten it. They make it sound pretty. Um, it usually, I mean, hopefully goes through another round of QC any additional corrections come back to me and then it's done and it goes out to the distribution channels and it is uploaded and becomes an audiobook. 
Wow. How long does that process typically take? It sounds fairly labor intensive, but like, give me some timelines. It is. So, I mean, it depends on, you know, when the project comes to me and when I'm reading it. But the way that I've kind of figured it out is so the entire industry is based on how long an audiobook ends up being per finished hour. And for me, it's about four hours of actual work to one finished hour of audio. Um, that's not counting, you know, the scheduling and the emails and all of that, but just the prep read, the conversations that come out of that, um, the actual recording process. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, that gives you a, a, a good sense of like, okay, if this is an eight hour audiobook, there was probably a good, what, you know, almost 50 hours at least probably that went into the creation of that. Yeah. And I always also, I, I tend to like, when I was doing a lot of books a year, you know, I was at a certain point in my career doing 70 titles a year or something. And not only is the reading load of that in, you know, absolutely nuts, but it's also the the admin, the you know, you're, you're an independent contractor. So everyone has a different like file yes. delivery system and everyone has a different invoicing system and everyone, ha you know, so it's a uh, the actual business of running the business also is time I'm not. Uh, accounting for when I'm saying this, I'm just talking about the actual individual books and how I go about making them into right. audio. Right. Yeah. Liz and I are both ghostwriters and independent contractors for various you know, yeah. agencies and authors and stuff. So we live that life day in and day out as well. Um, so how do you, I'm curious, just how do you prepare to record something? I've heard on other podcasts, you say that green apples are a thing. Mm -hmm. So talk to me more about a little bit about, you know, how do you personally prepare and just like, what's the physical demands on your voice? Yeah. So, well, I'm sitting here, as you can tell, clearing my throat because, um, I, if this were a normal recording day, which I should probably from this point forward consider that podcasts are also recording days, but I would have never had milk in my coffee. <laughs> I know. I just had um, lunch and I was like, that's probably not the wise choice, yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. um, so I probably should have had a green apple. Um, I hydrate a lot. I also live in the desert. So I'm, I mean, I probably have four or five like big mason jars of water a day, just constantly hydrating. Uh, again, if I know I'm going to record, I won't drink the night before. Um, I avoid being in places where I have to shout. This was a bigger issue when I was living in L.A. and like in my 20s and would go out with people. And then at a certain point in the evening, I'd be like, I need to leave because <laughs> I have to record tomorrow and I can't yell at you across the table. Um, and, you know, just general vocal health. I come from a very strong vocal training background. And so I know how to do this. But yeah, it's tough depending on the book, you know, if there's a lot of guy voices or there's a lot of battle scenes or screaming or, you know, it all it takes a toll. For sure. I can I can imagine that. I also imagine that for authors listening, kind of the the demands that go into making an audiobook come maybe as a bit of a surprise. I hear a lot of authors um, you know, saying things like, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm obviously going to record my own audiobook and um the I think there is this expectation that like, it's not that hard, but I don't think that's the case at all. And obviously from working at a publisher myself, I had a little bit of a glimpse into all of the work that went into the process, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. You know, what do you see as maybe some of the assumptions that a lot of authors make about what it takes to create audiobooks? 
Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. And especially because, you know, I've been in the business 15 years now or so, and I've seen this expectation change because when I started, because it was a, such a smaller medium and such a smaller market, um, I almost had no interaction with authors, very rarely. Most authors didn't even consider audio or have any opinions about it. It was just something that would like happen to them. As this has become a much bigger thing and authors have become audio fans themselves, let's say, so they have opinions about narrators, or I've started to see things built into their contracts that are like, you know, narrator consultation. Very few people can get narrator approval, but narrator consultation, let's say. Um, and so they're a bigger part of the of the process. I always say to authors that it's the first adaptation that happens of your book. And I kind of like to remind them that if you were going to option, you know, give your rights away for a film, you're not going to have absolute control over how that film is made. In fact, you will probably have zero control over how that film is made. And when it comes to audio, you're never going to hear exactly what is in your head, you know. But that doesn't mean that a narrator has not interpreted your work correctly for the reader or the listener in this case. And I think that this is a like I have I have really wonderful relationships with authors who are like, oh, my God, I heard your voice. And it was just like that was the voice in my head. And then I have other authors who are friends of mine, but they're like, I can't listen to the audio. And as an author myself, I would not be able to listen to the audio if someone else did it of mine. <laughs> but I I think that there is a. So, OK, on the that's that's like your relationship to the audio project and hopefully you have a good open line of communication with your narrator um, and they don't feel that you're micromanaging and you don't feel that they're blowing you off and it's a it's a copacetic very healthy collaboration when we're talking about an, an author recording their own book i used to direct a lot of audiobooks and i would direct a lot of author reads and the thing that i will say is that yeah it seems like a good idea at the time but depending on the book, if it's a memoir, for instance, what I find happens is the recording process is often the first time that it really sinks in that other people are going to be taking this book. They're going to be learning about this. They're going to be hearing this. They're going to be reading this. Um, and that can be very anxiety producing. It can also be re-traumatizing if it's that kind of memoir. Because you wouldn't think it's possible because you have edited this thing and other people have read it and given you notes and you've edited it again. But when you're not stopping and pulling it apart and, you know, trying to fix something and you're just reading it and you're reading your story, it can be very, very vulnerable and re-traumatizing. So take all of that and the emotions of it and then add on the layer of learning how to do the job while you're doing it learning you can't move, learning, you know, you can't touch things, learning that you your breathing is going to sound like Darth Vader in your headphones, but that's okay, we don't hear it on the mic, learning that someone's going to come in and stop you and you're going to have to go back two seconds and start again. So the technical aspect layered onto the emotional aspect of it is a, it's a tall order. Right, right. I can imagine, I know, you know, uh, Liz and I have not written a memoir. We wrote a prescriptive nonfiction book together. And one of the questions that came up as we were negotiating our contract with the publisher was, you know, about the audiobook. And we ended up 
uh, keeping our rights and then selling them directly to an audiobook publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the questions that came up during that negotiation was, you know, should we should we ask to read it ourselves? And both of us kind of looked at each other and we were like, no, definitely not. Right, right. <laughs> to us, it was a very clear like, no, thank you. That's not our area of expertise. We're going to just trust someone else to do that really well, especially because of the added complications of there's two of us and you know, how, like, do we read different chapters or how is that going to like, what's the end result going to be for the, for the listener? It just added a whole layer of complexity that we didn't want to touch. Um, but I think for a lot of authors, there really is a hope that they would be able to record it themselves. And that's not a foregone conclusion, at least in publishers' minds. A lot of the time, it might be something that they can negotiate into the contract. Um, but let me, let me spitball a situation with you that happened to a friend of mine recently. Um, She is a well-known podcaster and she's publishing her first book with a pretty reputable independent publisher. And because she's a podcaster and she was kind of signed on the strength of her podcasting platform, she went into it with some assumptions that, you know, and, and hopes that she would be able to do the audiobook. She found out then that she had to audition to read her own audiobook and she was auditioning against, you know, professional audiobook narrators, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she just found out that she didn't get it. So even though, you know, she feels like her audience knows her voice, this is her platform is, is this, you know, it, it is in audio form. That's where people know her. And she just found out she's not going to get to read her audiobook. And obviously that's crushing and disappointing yeah, in a lot of yeah. ways. And she also feels like no one really prepared her for that possibility. And one right. of one of my goals and one of our goals for this podcast is that authors listening would go into a publisher relationship kind of being prepared for all the possibilities and outcomes. Yeah, that's great. So if you don't mind, let's talk about this situation. Yeah, I don't know sure. if you have any thoughts on it. Um, well, my, my thoughts are just, you know, I'm really sorry very disappointing and, um, you know, not knowing anything about the specifics or what the project actually is or anything. I I wouldn't feel obviously comfortable offering an opinion or saying the publisher made the wrong choice here, but it does seem like this is a, this is a case of expectations not being met and assumptions (laughs) being, um, being made that shouldn't have been made. And it's not her fault because she hasn't done this before, but these are all things that probably should have been clarified ahead of time when you were doing the contract. Now, the unfortunate thing is most authors, and especially first-time authors, that's the point where no one wants to say anything because they don't want to screw up a deal. And so they'll just, you know, be like, just sign the papers as quickly as possible. You know, that's obviously what an agent's there for is to say, no, there's things we have to we have to work out. In most contracts, to my understanding, it would not be a guarantee that you would record the audiobook. What would end up happening is you would be given an opportunity to audition. That's kind of, I think, the best contractual language you could possibly get. I mean, maybe unless you're Michelle Obama, but then they'd want you to do it anyway. So I think, see, in a situation like that, and these are just things, again, if she's assuming, well, why wouldn't they want me to? And the publisher is assuming, well, we have a certain way we do things. You just can't take anything for granted. I'll I'll do a, a personal anecdote on this um, in a second. But it would have been valuable at the beginning, and I think if we're looking 
for your your listeners to think about their own contracts, then the the only informative part of this is if this is important to you, everyone needs to know that. Your agent needs to know that. The acquiring editor needs to know that. There needs to be language around that, even if it's an email chain of this is very, very important to me because you might not get them to put it into a contract. But if it's been clearly stated that, like, we hear you, we understand the benefit of having you do this, um, then if they don't do it, there's grounds for going back and saying, what happened here? And how can we make up for it in some other way? Um, Because it's that's you're you have to decide. It's also like to me, I'm just sorry, I'm feeling for you because now I'm I'm putting myself in the future of like this audiobook comes out and you're going to have you're the one who's going to have to field the questions about why didn't you do the audiobook and you right. and your publisher honestly need to have a conversation about how you're going to message that um because there can be value I want to come back to this even if you're a successful podcaster and even if you know people would have that expectation there can be value to an audience that a professional narrator will bring. You know, I will tell I would say this to authors all the time too, especially if you are recording something and you don't have that big a platform, but you just want to record it because it's your story. You're shooting yourself in the foot because one part of audiobook publishing is that narrators have their own followings. If someone is looking for me on Audible and they're, they want to listen to anything I record, they're going to find your book. And if it were just your book out there in the Audible ecosystem with you narrating it, that's that makes it harder to discover. So narrators bring a lot of value to people finding your books. So it can be a good thing. But again, it's about managing expectations. Right. No, that's actually really good advice. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, going back to my friend and saying like, yeah, actually you can ask your publisher, you know, how do they want you to explain the fact that you didn't record this? And maybe there's some, maybe there's some leverage there. And, you know, maybe there's, and I don't, I don't know the book, but like, there's certainly been cases where I have recorded books, but they've brought the author in to read the foreword or they brought the author Mm. in to read the author note or something so that it feels like, I'm passing this off to the professional, mm. um, but yes. it's my voice. I'm orienting you in the world like this is my book. Now here's a professional reading it. I've certainly mm-hmm. done that. Okay. Okay. That's actually, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like I said, question. not knowing the book or not knowing if that's a possibility, but I would definitely at this point express to the publisher, I think this puts me in an awkward position and yeah. how are we going to... um explain this. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing advice. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, Julia, you mentioned that you had a story you wanted to share. Oh, yeah. About expectations of the publish. So I had a situation where when my second book came out, um, which is set in the audiobook world and is about audiobook narrators recording audiobooks, I had made sure to get the recording of the audiobook done early. I sent off the files and then I waited a very long time to get corrections back, like longer than I would wait on any other title. So I finally nudged the producer and I said, you know, um, where can can we get those corrections? I, I want to, we need to get the advanced listening copies out to reviewers. And they wrote back and said, oh, we weren't planning on doing advanced listening copies. 
it really is like the beginning of my villain origin story. But I uh, but more than anything, I had to I realized that this was so obvious to me that, of course, we would do advanced listening copies. Why wouldn't we? That I never actually asked them if we were doing this. And so we had a situation where then it was sort of a scramble because I said, well, guys, in a book that's about audiobook, like I have people messaging me every day saying, I got the arc. It looks really pretty, but I'm waiting to listen to it. And so there's just this disconnect between how they're thinking of the book and how I'm thinking of the book. And we had to then when I was when I explained this, that I have all of these people who want to listen to an early copy, not read one. Then they went into a scramble to, okay, well, we'll do this. We'll do an abbreviated program. We will send it out through these distributors, you know. And again, this is something that should have been explicitly stated. I didn't think it needed to be, but that's on me. There's a lot of moving pieces. A lot of things fall through the cracks. Different departments don't talk to each other. Like, unfortunately, that's your job as the author. Right. And and to be fair to you and to my friend, like there's a lot that goes into negotiating contracts and there's so many considerations and you're working your butt off to, you know, be very present, be very visible online, build your platform. You're doing all of these things. You have so many things to consider when you are negotiating this contract. You're trying to you know, feel it out, especially if it's your first time, you have all of this, you know, conflicting advice. Sometimes you've got what the publisher is telling you, you've got what your agent is telling you. Mm -hmm. You, If you've got friends in the industry, you've got what they're telling you. So, you know, signing a contract, it's like this perfect storm of all of these things coming on you at once. And it is hard to, um, you know, to keep in mind all of the things you should be checking. Absolutely. And you don't, and you don't know what you don't know. Right. You know, I mean, I had a situation where I fought very hard to get into the contract, a kind of like built in a bonus. You know, you hit a certain number of sales, you get a bonus. And I hit it and I was like, oh, my gosh, yay, get the bonus. Well, I didn't realize because they're called bonuses, but bonuses in publishing are just more advances. So you get you get a bonus and it's just another advance that you have to earn out. And to me, that's like not that's not the definition of a bonus. <laughs> like, yeah, so what? Things like that are always like mother giveth, mother taketh away. And um, it's again, you wouldn't know this until you're there. And you, by the fact that you're there, it's a good problem to have. You know, these are all like these are one percent problems, but um, it definitely can it takes you by surprise. So. I have noticed um, a trend towards more audiobooks with music. I'm curious if you have any mm. thoughts on that trend. I've definitely seen this um, done really well with like Malcolm Gladwell. And obviously, you know, these really, especially authors like Malcolm Gladwell who have big podcasts where music is part of the whole production package. And obviously, Pushkin Industries, they also record, I think, their own audiobooks yeah, too. Yeah. So that's, you know, for him, that's fine. But I am just noticing this trend towards more audiobooks that integrate lots of music and other audio effects. Have you kind of played around with any of that or how did, how does that all work? So I've done a couple of projects. I mean, I think there's been music, like uh, there's been score of some kind, you know, um, at the beginning or at the end or something. But I've started playing around. Of two, I can think of two situations where um, PRH did... Cormac McCarthy's last two novels, but the very the very last one is 
um, I did with Eduardo Ballerini, and it was written, it was perfectly suited to this. It was a transcript of counseling sessions between a woman and a therapist. And we decided we obviously wanted to be in the same room recording it live. It was really suited to that. And we didn't want to sound design it in any way, but we thought that what would be helpful is when the sessions start and when they end, having because it's set in 1973 or something, having like an old tape recorder type of on and off sound, just to yeah. signal to the listener like, okay, we're in session, we're off. The other thing that was the only other sound that we could think of in the piece was the character asks for a cigarette a couple of times. And so being able to have like an old school lighter sound made it feel like a transcript. But that felt very organic to the book. I mean, that's what the book is. We weren't forcing that on a narrative that didn't have it. In my next book that I did myself, I did it as duet. So same thing where you've got actors. It feels like it just sounds like a live recording of people talking. And I put music into it because I built a song into it. So the music is teased in like halfway through the book, and then it's built into the narrative structure at the end. So I'm all for experimenting with this. I mean, there's fully sound designed, you know, kind of like fully like old school radio drama stuff. But I also think that there's, again, if it's delicate and it's not overdone and it it means something to the story, I think it can be really valuable and enhance the listening experience. Yeah. I know I've, I've definitely enjoyed um, some of the audiobooks that I've I've heard that do that, but you're right. It has to be done well because I've also heard some podcast productions and some audiobooks where it almost sounds gimmicky. Yeah. And I'm sure it's just a careful balance and and you have to have kind of a heightened sensitivity to to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think anything, you know, the more you can do like on the day, uh, meaning in the recording, it's gonna feel more natural. I mean, I'm even thinking about the cigarette thing in Stella Maris, and it it's like we had a lighter. I think they ended up using a different lighter, um, but at least we had it on the track. So it was like very clear when it was happening. And then I'm holding an actual cigarette and breathing as if I'm inhaling. And so it's like got this that didn't have to be fixed in post. You know, that felt that was real to the moment we were recording. And I think that translates to the listener. Yeah, that's very cool. So you mentioned um, one of your books. Thank you for listening. And how important, obviously, to that book specifically, the audio experience was. And obviously for you, the audio experience is incredibly important to all of the books that you're writing. But I'm curious, how does how do you think that impacts the way that you write? Because you're writing for the print and for the ear. So how do you, you know, does that yeah. change your writing process at all? You know, not enough. And I'm going to be honest about that. Like, this has now happened three times where I don't think about the audiobook version of this until it's too late in a lot of ways. Um, because I, I'm still writing it. I'm a writer, first and foremost. And so I write books as books. And I'm not thinking about them in audio. And the one thing I will say is that part of my editorial process is reading out loud. So I've read the book out loud multiple times just for rhythm and clarity, and you find those sneaky little repetitious words when you 
read something out loud and and that's valuable. But I'm not thinking about performance. I'm not thinking about how am I going to do this or how am I going to do this character um, until, frankly, too late in the process. So it doesn't really change the way that I think about things. I think moving forward it will because um, part of being able to create my own stuff now, which we'll we'll talk about, but part of that is freeing up the way that I think of stories. So when I'm conceiving, the, it's just that the last three books I thought of as books. But now I'm thinking I could do these as audio originals instead. And what would that look like? How would I tell this story in that format. So it, that's going to change the way that I approach it moving forward. On that note, let's talk about kind of your your big new project, which is launching, just launched in February. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Audiobrary and Casanova. Okay. So um, yes. Okay. So I have been um, over the last year thinking about ways that the things that I think are broken in publishing in general, but specifically audio publishing. And I have a couple of like pet issues around that. One is my big thing is narrators don't get royalties in traditional publishing. So um, I just think that's patently unfair and egregious, frankly. And I want to try to change that. Um, and then the other part of it is we obviously have a coming onslaught of uh, synthetic voice, AI, text-to-speech technology. And I don't really I don't really care about that because that's definitely going to be a thing and it's a big thing and it will change the market. But what I'm concerned, I, there's still going to be a desire for human storytelling. And so what I'm trying to do is say, if if we want that to continue, how do we do that in a sustainable way that allows people to still make a living doing this? And so I'm trying to build a structure for the future where by giving narrators royalties, by doing direct-to-consumer sales, um, authors are also getting a larger slice of the pie and just kind of creating a haven for human storytellers um, that will hopefully be sustainable. So Audiobrary is an audio publishing company, and it is also an app where the product is delivered. So you would go to the Audiobrary website and you would purchase the product. And whether that's original pro uh, products, projects that Audiobrary has produced, or whether that's just uh, other existing audio projects that we're distributing, you go and you purchase that on the website, and then it is delivered to the Audiobrary app, which functions like any other audio app. It keeps the files safe. <laughs> that was my big problem and workaround and why I had to create this whole thing to begin with. Um, and you, the the thing that we're trying to do is I, I fully intend to distribute certain versions of our stuff wide, but the more I can get people to come to Audiobrary, your, your money is really going to the creators. When yeah. it goes through Audible, it's, they're taking 70% off the top and the margins are just, this is why I realized I had to create a distribution channel as well, because I could just do original publishing, but then if I'm distributing it on the same platforms, we're not making enough to move the needle. And um, so that's that's what this is. It's kind of a holistic approach to audio publishing, and um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so wow. as part of a test case for that, 
I decided to hold on to my last book and do it myself through Audiobrary. And I'm doing it as an eight-episode audio series that launched on Valentine's Day. Um, and it's called Casanova LLC. And if you're familiar with Thank You for Listening, the book I was talking about earlier, Casanova LLC is the audio series that the main characters in Thank You for Listening were recording. So it's it's they're totally standalone, but it's um, a spicy romance series that they're recording. I am really excited about that. I have to tell you, I have not historically been a romance fan, but I did read Thank You for Listening, and it kind of piqued my interest again. And I was like, you know what? Great. I I'm kind of into this right now, and I'm super excited for Casanova. <laughs> well, Casanova is uh, definitely um, a few a few serious clicks past. Thank you for listening. It is for sure. indoctrinated romance fans. Um, I've already had a couple of people listen to it and was like, well, this doesn't feel like a Julia Whalen book because Thank You for Listening was pretty closed door. Um, Casanova is not. I mean, it's about it's a second chance romance with a gigolo descended from Casanova. So, like, there was no writing around that. That had to be right. Very explicit. Yes, I love yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah. So if an author like let's say let's say for our next book. If we wanted to retain our audiobook rights again, mm -hmm. you know, could we like pitch them to yeah, audio okay. Absolutely. What is, is there like a process that authors there, need to there will be. That? So this okay. is this is where <laughs> we just have launched the company and just really in time for Casanova. And now I'm obviously in full press promotion mode for Casanova. So at as it is right now on the website, it says we're not taking any um, submissions. That will change eventually. I just need to set up a protocol for that. So I recommend that people sign up for the newsletter and also follow my audiobrary on Instagram or Facebook. And I will, when that changes, I will let people know. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately, you know, for me, the, the kind of target for this is people who, because there's a lot of audio publishers out there and they can all make a, a good audio product. For me, in building the the kind of thesis of this company is I want it to feel like a library where you go in. It's not going to be everything that's ever been written. It's not I'm not audible here, but I want you to be able to go in and something piques your curiosity and you can find kind of five other things that are tangentially related to that. So if your project happens to share some DNA with something else we've got um, or you have a project that is really suited to audio, you know, I have a lot of author friends that I've been talking to about this and they're like, you know, it's so funny. I had this manuscript, but it just like I, I didn't really think it was a book. I just wrote it as a book because that's what I was, you know, that was my career and that's what I was doing. And if I just repurposed it so that it was more for audio, this would be great for that. Um, that kind of thing. OK. And do you plan on like specializing in primarily in fiction still or do you foresee nonfiction as well no it's all over the place and okay. <laughs> to be fair that's either going to work or it's not going to work and I I know that I feel like someone was like well you need to have like is it going to be a romance and I was like you know no because our next project up is a uh, narrative nonfiction a, a historical narrative genre. nonfiction yeah so uh no, it's going to be a little bit of everything. But the other thing that we're doing is because I want to have these editions that can go wide, but there will always be a version of 
the book that I'm calling the Rabbit Hole Edition, only available on Audiobrary, that would have interviews with the writers, uh, supplemental materials, things where you can kind of do deep dives on the subject matter of the book. So also, if you have a project that you think, yeah, there's a book here, there's an audio product here, but there's so much room for more conversation or supplemental stuff, that's that's going to be very appealing to me, too. Okay. Well, it sounds like maybe there's an opportunity for like Audiobrary imprints or something, mm-hmm. which would be kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last question. What have been some of your favorite audiobooks to narrate? And I will tell you mine. My favorites have been educated. Oh, I think that wow. was, I think that was my first audiobook mm-hmm. of yours that I heard. Um, and then you also, I think the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I had a small part, part in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I had like some familiarity with you from those two exposures. But what have been your favorite projects? That's it's a very hard question. Um, I mean, I've recorded 500 books or something now. And I think that, you know, I, it also depends on genre and category. Uh, if I'm talking about like rom-coms, I think the Emily Henry books are delightful. Um, there's Educated as a Memoir is just so beautiful, so beautiful. You know, here's a nonfiction book that I'll mention because the book itself, there's some controversy around the book itself. But I will say that recording it was absolutely brutal, but also beautiful. Um, And it's called The Betrayal of Anne Frank. And it was about a real thing, which is the Dutch government essentially created a task force of all these experts across all different law enforcement divisions internationally to finally solve the mystery of who betrayed the Frank family. And the book, the controversy came not so much from the book, but from the actual um, task force, because there was, you know, issues with methodology or things, you know, things of that nature. I think mainly people didn't like the conclusions that were drawn and didn't feel that um, they were warranted. But that said, the book itself about the history of that time, which I did not know, I didn't know about this particular um, window into what the Frank family, before we all know the story, like we all start the story with the diary, but before all of that, I didn't know any of this. And it's, it's really compelling and really beautiful. And, um, that's a good listen, I think. Wow. Okay. I am going to get that. Like, I'm going to look for it right after we hang up because, like I said, narrative nonfiction is my favorite genre. Kate Moore's books have been like life-changing for me and um, just so many. So thank you. Yeah, That's awesome. absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again, Julia, for being on with us today. It's just a delight and a pleasure. I'm really excited about Audiobrary and Casanova. I can't wait to listen to that. Thank and you. Um, we'll include your links in all the show notes so that people can learn more and connect with you that way. Fantastic. Thank you so much. listening to today's episode. If you're a hungry author and you want to learn more about our community and courses, head over to hungryauthors.com. Remember, you have a story and a message worth sharing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen.